For the summer, we started uh, topicals, individual topics. Started in the book of Exodus at the beginning of the summer, and then we will get back to that eventually. But in the meantime here, we're dealing with some subjects uh, one at a time. Last week, we started on the subject of money, and uh, we're going to continue that. This is really just uh, money part two, only the title today is Money Talks. I want to do this um, in the reverse order of what we typically do. We do the main passage. This would be Matthew 6 first. But I want to draw your attention to the four passages that are listed as separates. These would normally be the takeaway takeaways for life, but they are the takeaways for life. But you can find Matthew chapter 6 and be prepared for that. That's page 685 in your pew Bible, if that's what you're using, and uh, but we will look at the four passages that go with it first. Number one, I want to do this um, in this way because uh, there is scattered information through the Bible on the subject of money, like many practical issues in life, uh, there is rarely a concentrated place where there's a, say, a systematic or a seminar-type teaching on the subject. I know that some of you have gone through um, a seminar teaching experience called um, Financial Peace University, right? And uh, I'm looking for a place here to put this right now, and I think I found it. Some of you, uh, when you go through a course like that or do a study on that, you really are always dealing with a collection of biblical passages from different parts of the scripture. Now one of the uh, reasons for that is that the Bible is a holistic book. It's really a life book. It contains uh, historical narrative sections. It contains stories, biographical stories. It contains parables. Uh, But scattered throughout are what are called didactic sections or teaching sections. These are what you might find in a classroom or typically a sermon is a teaching uh, phenomenon, something that's laid out logically or illogically, but laid out in a concentrated form. The Sermon on the Mount, the passage in Matthew 6, we'll be looking at in a minute, is one such uh, three-chapter example of that. But then the epistles written by the Apostle Paul, Peter, John, and a few others, uh, these are logical developments of ideas. Uh, But life issues such as money, health, relationships tend to be scattered throughout because these are the applications of the principles that we are given information about in the Bible. The Bible is never presented as a how-to course or a self-help book. Um, Actually, it usually, when presented like that, has some distortions because when you separate certain topics out from the whole life. You've probably noticed this about if you've ever uh, read a book or on certain topics like, say, marriage or child raising or finances or any other of those practical hands-on subjects, uh, you'll notice and you probably should notice that a great deal of the teaching is what that particular author um, values and how they tend to look at life. And that has to be taken somewhat with a grain of salt because, uh, because how people put things together is important. You need to always remember 
when talking about life issues that whoever is presenting the material, whether it's a seminar or a book, is presenting it in the ways that they have found most helpful to think about it. And sometimes that's a little confusing because then you get the impression that this might be biblical teaching. Actually, it's not. It's Dave Ramsey's teaching about what the Bible says about money. But Dave Ramsey is really the organizer. Or it might be Larry Christensen or Dr. Dobson's teaching about family life. And it's good to keep that name on there so you don't get confused with what they're teaching and the Bible they're quoting. Maybe accurate quotes, maybe not. But nevertheless, whoever's putting it together is presenting the topic in a way that they have experience and have knowledge in. And that's probably good knowledge. But I'm afraid that uh, if you look at history, some of the great conflicts between churches, denominations through historic history have arisen because of the influence of a great leader, not the Bible. The biblical information is the same from beginning to end. But Martin Luther... John Calvin, Menno Simons, and uh, others you can think of over the years have been great influences and thereby have created strains of thought, all using the same book, but nevertheless going down different paths. And as time goes on, sometimes these have been horrific wars between the categories, unnecessarily so, because going back to the scripture is a good way to distinguish between that which is permanent and that which is applicable to an immediate circumstance. So I want to, uh, you have in your bulletin there, you have four uh, numbered uh, things from the scripture in general of topics that I want to use as a background to the actual text from Matthew 6. Number one, um, attitude matters too. Envy is as deadly as greed. And here we're quoting from Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9. And I know I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are the core of what is considered the wisdom literature. If you read the Proverbs or the Ecclesiastes or the book of Job, for example, you're talking about life wisdom. And there's no particular revelation to it in its original form. But it's a collection of things that people have observed, wisdom from life that is built in to God's world that you can put down on paper as truisms. And the Proverbs represent truisms. A lot of uh, difficulty some, uh, comes from looking at those passages uh, in there in a different way as if they're promises to claim or as if they're laws of life or living or special revelation. They're not. They are what it's like to be human. And number one, attitude matters too. Envy is as deadly as greed. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Now, this in the book of Proverbs is from uh, a writer or collector of Proverbs named Agur or Agur. Uh, but Solomon was the collator of these wisdom things. And Solomon knew something about this. Solomon became the wealthiest man of his time in the world. And he knew that too much wealth 
is a huge temptation. So this is a good prayer. This is one that actually is put in the form of a prayer. And this might be when it comes to praying about money in your life. This might be a good place to start. It's a very practical prayer. I don't want too much. Have you ever prayed that much that way? Lord, I don't... I don't. Yeah, who, who is that? Uh, Tevya in uh, Fiddler on the Roof. One of the songs. I don't want to be a rich man, rich man, but please, Lord, just a teeny little fortune. Wouldn't that be okay? And um, that's really what he's saying here. I think if you look around you, you can probably observe that people who are poor are tempted to um, steal, cheat. People who are rich are tempted to steal and cheat. Have you noticed that? Some of the worst crooks in the world, and certainly in our country, are people with a big bucket full of money. Uh, they cheat on their taxes, they cheat in business, they cheat in politics, they do all kinds of things. But here the prayer is, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. That's from the Lord's Prayer, that the way Jesus put it. But that's really what he's saying clear back there. Is that having enough? I want to have enough so that I don't have to think about it all the time. But I don't want too much so that I don't have to think about it all the time. And where is that line? Maybe the best way to figure out where that line is is to let God decide for you. Paul in Philippians 4 talks about contentment. I am content with what I have. I've learned how to be poor. I've learned how to be well off. And I am content with whatever God gives me because when you look at it as what God gives you, the source or the amount that you have, then your ability to handle it, to be content with it, or to use it wisely is going to be a lot greater. I would say one other thing here that, um, you, uh, that might be worth uh, remembering is that you don't need to be rich to be materialistic. I think uh, a lot of poor people think about money an awful lot, what they want to get. And I think, uh, let's be honest, sometimes the only difference between the rich and the poor is that the poor have the same value system in some cases. They're just too stupid to get rich. That's a reality, that's a truism that you probably observe if you look around that some people really would love to be rich, they just don't have it up here to get there. But their value system is actually the same. Think about money an awful lot. I know a lot of poor people think about money an awful lot. We've been in situations ourselves where thinking about money is a big temptation and some of it is need but some of it is just value. What do you value? And there are rich people who have an awful lot but don't think about money at all hardly. That happens too. So it's really in the heart how you value what you have and what you do with it when you have it. That makes the difference. And number two, in the practical background on this subject, work in planning our ways for God to provide. Proverbs 6, verse 6 through 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. 
meaning that work is an integrated part of life. I don't know if you are familiar, how familiar you are, or how you, well you remember the story of uh, the creation story of Adam and Eve. What did God do with Adam and Eve right from the beginning? Before sin even entered the world. Put them in the garden to tend it, to work it. And that is in microcosm what God intended for human beings. I think work is an integral part of life. Uh, You probably can tell that people that grow up not needing to work, especially children, have a lot harder time making it in life. Their value system is screwed up. They have a sense of entitlement or victimization if everything isn't going their way because they grew up believing that they were owed a living. They were owed comfort. They're owed everything. And therefore, they have trouble in life later on. One of our jobs as parents is to make slaves of our children. I know our kids always accused us of mixing up our role, parent, slave owner, but then I remember growing up that way myself. And I do think it's an issue that is simply in the book of Proverbs because it's wisdom. No humans in the world are exempt. Work is an integral part. And not only that, but work is an integral part of God's provision. When we ask the Lord to provide for us, and he says, okay, here is a job, what do you want to do? Oh, no, Lord, I want you to provide. I don't want to work. That sounds like work. You remember Maynard G. Krebs? Some of you are old enough to remember that. Dobie Gillis. Dobie Gillis, this was... um, Oh, prior to Gilligan's Island. Work. Every time he heard the word work, it was like a reaction, uh, an allergy. And um, I recall an incident when we were first in ministry. We got uh, engaged a young man who was um, living at the Union Gospel Mission downtown. Not here, but a different city. And he was always talking about how he just could not find a job. And so one of the men in the church pulled a few strings and got him a job with a friend who owned a company. And Leonard was reluctant to take it because God had told him that he shouldn't take any job that that did not meet these seven criteria. Seven of them. Well, this one happened to meet all seven of that criteria he set. Uh, So he took the job. Two days later... He quit. And so I asked him, what happened? I thought he met met all seven criteria. He said, well, yeah, but I also have a list of criteria for when to quit a job. Well, I said, what are those? Well, there's only two. Wait a minute. Seven criteria to meet before you take the job and only two before you quit the job? You're just plain lazy Don't come around here anymore asking for anything because there was no reason he couldn't work. He didn't want to work. He had figured out that there are ways of getting money without working. Genius. Some people are genius at that. Now, there's no direct link, always, I say always, between laziness 
and poverty. But if you read the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you will see quite a few references to laziness and poverty. That means we should be thinking about it at least. There are other reasons for poverty, but one of them is plain and simple and always has been with the human species. Some people just don't like work. God's answer to that is hunger. That's even become a, an expression. You're just, we, talk, we say this about ball players. They're not hungry enough. Once they get that big multi-billion dollar contract to play ball for the trailblazers and they get their signature on the line, they've lost their hunger. They're not motivated anymore to play. That's just life. That's who we are as human beings. God created us to produce as well as receive. And if we are not willing to produce, now I'm, not, I'm not making an uh, equation here between the source of income. I know pe many people on, who are retired and uh, on disability or have other sources of income that aren't directly linked to the private sector. I know many people like that who are very busy and productive people. In other words, if they have a source of income, they still want to do something constructive and contribute. That's good. That's the attitude that is spoken of here. I mentioned gambling last week, and I want to add that to this topic here again. One of the problems with gambling is that it looks like money without work. If I could just invest this money, throw that money in there, keep it going. My wife and I lived in Reno for a year. Very entertaining, but very depressing. Very depressing. We both worked and lived right downtown. Very depressing. This is a powerful addiction. And the fact that our government engages in feeding that addiction is depressing to me. Our government engages in feeding alcohol addictions as well. And next thing it's going to be, think of what profit we could make off of the meth sale business. Why not? It's the addicts that make all the money. Most people, when they go to a casino, spend a couple hundred bucks or whatever. It's the addicts that put in their whole paycheck. And if we as a society think it's fine to just bleed the sick and the addicted of their money, there's something morally corrupt about us. Because that's where most of it's coming from. That's the problem of disassociating work from income. Number three, pay your debts and use self-discipline. Now this is Romans 13. This is from the New Testament, but there are several references to this. This is a good summary of it in two verses. Give to everyone at what you owe them, and if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now, of course, there's some question about what exactly the term debt means. Is it wrong to borrow money to buy a house or a car or build a church building or get an education? 
I don't think it's wrong. Personally, I don't think you can prove from the Scripture that it's wrong. I think debt is an unpaid owed amount. A contract is not really debt. No, you can get over-contracted, that's for sure. But a contract to uh, return money in exchange for immediate access is probably a different subject. Um, people's views on that may differ, and I think that's just fine. But the point here isn't really, and if you focus too much on that, you end up tying people in knots about living their daily lives. The wrong to get a contract to buy a house. I don't see why it would be. Would it be wrong to not pay for that house and pay that contracted amount? Yeah, that's the point. Same would be with college education. It's a great investment. Dollar for dollar, probably the best in human history. What you get back from what you invest, even if you have to borrow to do it with education. Really, one of the, uh, statistically, probably the best business investment ever. Cars, whatever, it doesn't make any difference, the issues. And this is where the opinion of the seminar or book writer comes into the picture. I think the principle that he's dealing with here is pay what you owe and God will bless you. Don't try to skin people or cheat or get out of what you owe. And if you do run into trouble, be honest about it and get it done. That's really what God chooses to bless. And number four. Tithing is not a religious rule, but a proven management tool. Proverbs 3, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your crops. And then your barns will be filled with overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So if you have a shortage of new wine in your house, you know you haven't been tithing. Obviously, this is context reference. If you uh, put God first. Now, I want to develop the idea of tithing a little more later on and next week... I will uh, talk about that a little more. That's too big of a subject for, uh, for today. But uh, this is a biblical principle that if you inject God into your finances at the front end, it makes a big difference. Because, most of all, I think, because you put God in the picture from day one or from dollar one. And when you do it that way, the rest of how you spend has a guideline for it. And that guideline is, does this honor God? Is this what God would want? Because you put that right up front. That's why the tithe principle in the Bible is always presented this way, honoring God. You say something to God first, that this belongs to you too. We sometimes get the the feeling because of certain expressions that are used that this is the Lord's and the rest is whose? The devil's? Mine? Is there anything in your life that isn't God's? Well, yeah. I go to church on Sunday for an, and I give an hour and 15 minutes of my time and all the rest is mine. Or I give a little cash in the offering plate and all the rest is mine and God can just take a flying out of my life. Because that's my, if that's your thought, 
you got a wrong God. You got a cheap little God that you probably bought at Walmart or someplace. Bring him back. Get your money back. If God is not involved in every area of your life, and tithing is to tell God that. This is your money, Lord. And by this act, I dedicate it to you. Our church involvement in the same thing. This isn't where we have a little time with God and then we go out in the world and God, well, we visit him once a week. Isn't that enough? Don't we keep him chained up here someplace? Oh, I, maybe God's in that room there. We, we open it up and look once in a while, once a week, or maybe not even that. Time, spiritual relationships. If God is not involved in all of it, the purpose of the tithe is really very simple. It's a statement to God. Not just gratitude that he's provided, but a dedication of everything else in life to him. That makes everything else, your job, your car, your money, your house, that makes it all work more smoothly. And it helps you to understand it and keep it in perspective better. Simply because you told God by that one act that you want him involved in those areas of your life. Now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 and we will finish with this. We're not going to do a thorough exposition of this passage. Matthew chapter, page 685, verse 19 through 34. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, or you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. 
Each day has enough trouble of its own. Uh, Just about every line in that part of this discussion stands alone as an aphorism or a principle uh, that you can carry with you. And that's important because Jesus is not suggesting that all the biblical teachings about money, stewardship, property, values were wrong and I hereby cancel them out. He's saying your attitude about all of these things and about God is going to enable you to apply wisdom in these areas and balance and you'll be able to keep the perspective that is so difficult to keep in a material world. We live in a material world. I don't say materialistic because there is no such thing as a non-materialistic world. I remember the World's Fair of 1986 in Vancouver, Washington. The uh, pavilion of the um, Mediterranean nations was interesting because it had all these countries showing what their culture was like. And when I got to Cuba, it was nothing but a sales counter for Cuban cigars. And I thought, this is classic. The one communist country which has enslaved its people with the message that money is bad Capitalism is evil, and commercial enterprise is for crooks. The only thing they had to offer was selling something. Money is everywhere. Materialism is everywhere. You don't even need to be, have any money to be a materialist. That's what Jesus introduces to the subject. What are your values? You live in a physical world. Be a physical person. You're going to have money or not have money. You're going to, it's going to be around you. Everywhere in the world and in history, it's been there. But how you relate to it is going to be determined by how you relate to God. A value system that is more than the physical, more than the money, will keep us on track. Father, you are our provider And sometimes, Lord, relating the spiritual to the physical seems complex. But we know that behind it all is the fact that you are real, you know us, and we know you. So we ask for your help in keeping these things in perspective. Make us generous people. Make us wise people. Make us good stewards. Show us how to relate to work, money, homes, jobs, cars, all of these things. We just seek your wisdom and guidance on the decisions we make and the lifestyles we live. Fill us with your spirit and we know that we will be guided in these things. In Jesus' name we're asking, amen.